Bibles with you, open up to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, and as you turn there, I wanted to let you guys know I'm going to be gone for the next couple of weeks. I have the privilege of traveling to Malawi to uh, teach at a seminary there called Central African Preaching Academy. It's one of the TMAI centers, the Master's Academy International, and uh, basically I'm going to be teaching the book of Romans and teaching through First and Second Corinthians, and I'll be gone for two weeks' time. At the end of that trip, I'm actually going to dip down into Uganda as well and catch up with Shannon and with Danielle and be able to serve at their church on that second Sunday. And I'm pretty excited about that, not only to see family and a mission that we support, but on that particular Sunday, they're going to do six weddings. Uh, so they have uh, some members of their church that have never had a proper Christian wedding, and so Shannon's asked me to preach on a, on, a, on a marriage, and then we're going to do six ceremonies together. So I'm really excited about that. I can't wait to tell you all about it. So I'm just asking that you pray for me while I'm gone. The first week I'm gone, we're going to have Brian Biedebach. So Dr. Biedebach is the one who started the seminary where I'm going, and he's back now in the States and teaches at the Master's Seminary, overseeing some of their satellite campuses. So he'll be here in the pulpit next week while I'm kind of preaching for him in a sense. In Malawi, he'll be here. And then the second Sunday I'm going, it's going to be Dr. Barrick, who obviously we know and love. And I can't wait to hear from him as well uh, on that second week. So I appreciate you praying. I'm asking you to pray for three specific things. Number one, that I make my flight. So my flight leaves this afternoon at 2.45. So as soon as I'm done with this sermon, I am making a beeline to the airport. And if I don't make it, I might be here again next Sunday. But hopefully I'll make the flight at 2.45. We're cutting it kind of close. People always ask, well, why did you do that? Because the flight's like $2,000 cheaper you know, and you can save a whole day. So I'm trying to fit it all in. We'll see if that's the Lord's will here this afternoon. Second thing is if I do make the flight, I'm praying for evangelistic opportunities to share the gospel on the planes, a lot of flights, a lot of travel, a lot of layover time. And something I've discovered is when you travel by yourself, it just makes it that much easier to talk to other people. And I'm looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Would you pray for that for me while I'm gone? And obviously for the teaching. And then the third request is just for my wife and kids. You know, it's not easy being separated from the woman you love for two weeks. And, uh, you know, we think about this kind of sacrifice in ministry, and we're just reminded of what Luke wrote in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses, right? You will, be, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this is an opportunity for us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth as a family, even though I'm going and she's staying. Uh, that's what it takes in order sometimes to accomplish um, the Lord's will. So it's not easy, but it's something that we're on board with and uh, praying about, and uh, appreciate you praying for my family while I'm gone. So with all that in mind, we are now in John 3 this morning. We're looking at verses 22 through verse 30, and the title I've given this sermon is The Sin of Comparison. The Sin of Comparison. Now keep in mind here, we're talking about the author, John, is the apostle, and we've looked a lot at Jesus and John the Baptist, but this passage brings these two guys together as uh, we're going to say goodbye to John the Baptist here shortly, and then we'll just continue with Christ throughout the rest of the gospel. But consider this passage here, and, and uh, John 3, verses 22 through 30, we read this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you is across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive only one thing. A person uh, cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray that you would give us light and heat into this text. We pray, God, that you would allow us to see and understand what John wrote about John the Baptist and Jesus and their ministries. As we dive into this understanding that there was a little competition going on, I pray that you would root out any form of sin in our own lives 
that would head down this same path, and that you would allow us today to rejoice and to celebrate in the gospel and in the success of Christ's ministry going abroad. And we would just want to play our part as we learn what it means to decrease as we pray that you would increase in our lives and in our church and in our marriages and in all of our efforts. May we do what we do in your power and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let me start off this morning by telling you a story. And the story goes like this. It's about a guy named Marty who walks out into the street and manages to get a taxi that's just going by. And he gets into the taxi and the cab driver says, perfect timing. You're just like Dave. Who? Dave Anderson. There's a guy who did everything right, like my coming along when you needed a cab. It would have happened like that to Dave. There's always a few clouds over everybody, said Marty. Not Dave. He was a terrific athlete. He could have gone on the pro tour in tennis. He could golf with the pros. He was also an incredible swimmer. He sang like an opera baritone and danced like a Broadway star. He was really something, huh? He had a memory like a trap, could remember everybody's birthday. He knew all about wine, which fork to eat with. He could fix anything, not like me. I change a fuse and I black out the whole neighborhood. Well, no wonder you remember him. Well, actually, I never met Dave. Then how do you know so much about him, asked Marty. Because I married his widow. Uh-oh. That guy had a tough marriage, right, to fit in with that first guy. But do you ever get the feeling that somehow you don't quite measure up to the standard that someone else has set before you? Have you ever taken a job or a, a position and somehow you come into that slot and somehow everybody around you seems like the guy or the gal who did it before you did a better job than you're doing? And if you've ever experienced that, it can create quite a sense of inadequacy. Or, if you wish, you, you can always compare yourself to somebody and feel like you're doing better to them, but that leads to pride. Or if you feel like you're doing worse than them, then that can also just lead to your own self of, of, of lack of ability to accomplish the task. And we got to understand that we look as people and we, we, we compare ourselves to one another. We look around and we see people who've achieved such great things in their professional lives and in their family lives and in their spiritual lives, and sometimes we're left feeling inadequate. And if that's you this morning, I know I struggle at times with that. I think we all do. It's human nature. Jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. And this is what Paul says about this. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. And that one verse of the Apostle Paul really captures what I'm getting at here, talking about the sin of comparison. And Paul is saying this, you are a fool to spend your life always comparing yourself to other people. You are, in fact, you lack understanding of the grace of God and who you are in Christ if all you ever do is compare yourselves to other men instead of doing what it is that God has called you to do. The only one that we dare compare ourselves to, in a sense, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we always fall short of his perfect standard, he reaches out to pull us up to where he is. And if we feel any inadequacy, and we do, Jesus provides what we lack. If we feel any pride, he reminds us that we have no basis for it. And so the sermon today is about the sin of comparison. And this morning, I want to give you five headings that will help you stop comparing yourself with others, and instead to be who God has called you to be and to do what God has called you to do in his strength and for his glory. Here's the first heading this morning. Again, if you're taking notes, it's all right there. The ministry of John and Jesus overlapped. Now, I told you so far in the Gospel of John, we've been looking at Jesus Christ, and we've been looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. And this text kind of helps us see the overlap of these two guys and their ministry. In fact, the first blank there in your note says, Jesus is beginning his ministry. Jesus is beginning his ministry. Notice verse 22 says again, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them 
uh, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Well, verse 22 starts off saying, after this, which begs the question, after what? We could say really everything in chapter 3. We've seen in chapter 3 how Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, and Jesus looked at him and said, you must be born again. In chapter 3, we looked in verse 14 about how Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Here in chapter 3, we saw verse 16, the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Last week, we looked at John 3, 17, in which we were reminded that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So it's after this after everything that we've looked at in chapter 3, that Jesus now leaves Jerusalem. He had been there for the Passover. He had been there to kind of kick off his ministry. And now he's taken his ministry from the metropolitan area of Jerusalem out into the Judean countryside. Jesus had already been in Jerusalem. He had cleansed the temple. He had made his presence known to the Jews. He made his presence known to the Pharisees. He had interacted with some of his would-be disciples. And now he heads out into the country for a more rural ministry. And I've always appreciated this about Jesus. He will go into the town center, but he will also go into the middle of nowhere. Jesus will travel into the headquarters of the Jewish religion, but he will also take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus will talk to big shots like King Herod and like Pilate and like uh, Caiaphas, but he'll also talk to nobodies like we're going to see in John 4, the woman at the well in Samaria or the blind beggar Bartimaeus or the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus is not impressed with your status, and he is not turned off by your stench. Jesus Christ treats people with true value, and he comes after you wherever you are to bring you into his kingdom. Why? Because Jesus loves people. He loves to minister, and he loves to do the will of his Father. And so what we're seeing here in verse 22 is Jesus just continuing that kind of ministry. He's beginning now to go out into the countryside, and it says in verse 22 that he remained there. So he's out in the country, and he remained there. Let me just say a comment about this word, he remained there. It's the word in the original, diatribo, diatribo. This word means to remain or stay in a place. Jesus wasn't just blowing through town. He was spending quality time with his people. And as you might have guessed, the word diatribo kind of sounds like our English word diatribe, which today has a negative connotation. Not so in the first century. Today, it's a negative connotation. It's what we think about when somebody goes on a diatribe or they get on their soapbox and they start preaching about something that you could care less about. But originally, this Greek word meant, quote, to spend time in discourse. So Jesus is spending time He's teaching, he's instructing. This word remain gives rise to the idea that Jesus is talking with people. Jesus is teaching people. Jesus is preaching to people. He is the good shepherd and he was with his flock. He is the leader of Israel and he was accessible to his people. And so before he baptized them, I believe he spent time teaching them and instructing them. I believe that he spent time evaluating them and encouraging them. And it was only when they came to this point where he needed to baptize them that they were baptized. Now notice verse 22 says, and was baptizing. It doesn't highlight the subject of the verb baptizing. It just says, and there was baptizing going on. And so in order to understand that a little bit more clearly, look down at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where it says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although, take note, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So for whatever reason, Jesus decided to delegate the actual dunking of these baptismal candidates under the water to be part of his ministry, but he himself was not baptizing himself, all right? So just to clarify that uh, he's not actually doing the baptism, but it's following along with his ministry, okay? So we we could pause here and ask the question, well, what's John the Baptist doing? Sounds like Jesus is off to a pretty good start. He's out in the country. He's doing his thing. God's blessing the ministry. What's John doing? Your next blank says this. John is continuing his ministry. And in verse 23, we read, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Now, the exact location of Anon near Salim is not known. All we do know is that it was somewhere in Samaria, which means that it's south of the Sea of Galilee and it's north of Jerusalem. 
And somewhere along there, the Jordan River can get really narrow and not have a whole lot of water, or it can get really wide and have plenty of water. In this particular place, Anon is a Hebrew word that means springs. So literally, not only was Anon filled with the water from the Sea of Galilee heading south, but it was also filled maybe with underground springs that provided what? Plenty of water. Notice the care that the Apostle John takes to make sure we understand there was plenty of water there. And I think that it's important for us to realize that when it says Jesus and John, both in verse 22 and verse 23, are baptizing, it's the word baptizo, which literally means to dip or to immerse underwater. Further indication that it's good, I believe, for believers to be baptized, not by sprinkling, not by pouring over, not as an unbeliever, i.e. a baby, but rather as a full-blown believer to be immersed underwater and then brought out. But a second comment about this idea of baptism is the question, was this Christian baptism or was this a baptism of repentance? We've already studied about John the Baptist. When he's doing the baptism, people were not yet born again and being baptized. He's just getting them ready. And we see that when Luke writes in Acts 19, remember they head up towards Ephesus and they run into some people who had heard about John's baptism, uh, or about John, but they hadn't heard the full story about Jesus. Remember that? Here's what it says, Acts 19.4. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. And then Paul declared to them the fullness of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and they were baptized again. So what John was doing was what we call the baptism of repentance, preparing people for Christ. And I believe, and you could go either way on this, I believe that that's the same thing Jesus was doing. As he was baptizing, I believe he was also preparing people for the fullness of all of his teaching, all of his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. It was only after the resurrection, particularly in Acts chapter 2, when it was true Christian baptism. All right? Now, if you want to believe Jesus was doing Christian baptism, that's fine. It's really not a big deal. But it seems like that they're both kind of doing the same ministry. They're calling people to repent. They're calling people out of Judaism out of legalism, out of externalism, and they're calling them to prepare their heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what's John doing now that Jesus has his ministry up and going? Well, he's just continuing. He's doing what it is God called him to do. He doesn't lay down his Bible. He doesn't give up his ministry. He doesn't take a back seat in the sense of just doing zero. He continues to be putting his hand to the plow and being busy doing what God's calling to do. And the summary, really, of John the Baptist's ministry could be found in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, where it's written there from Isaiah that he would send his messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord, right? A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness. Again, he's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And uh, he's baptizing, he's wearing camel's hair and a leather's belt and he's saying that I'm not worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus. I, I come to baptize you with water but ultimately he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I love this description about John the Baptist. I, I, mean, I mean he went against the mold he went against the grain. He was unconventional. He was totally obedient. He was spirit-led. He was living an abundant life and a radical life for Christ and for the gospel. And by the way, what was John the Baptist's reward for doing such a great job? He gets arrested. Verse 24, this is now giving us a little bit of chronology where we understand for John had not yet been put in prison. A little bit of a side note because John gives us supplemental information to the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he's just saying, hey, between Jesus' baptism and between John's imprisonment, you know what he was doing? He's still working. He's still doing the Lord's work. He's still doing it in the Lord's power. God's still blessing his ministry. He's still preaching. He's still baptizing. He's still doing what God's called him to do, but what did it lead to? His arrest, and eventually his head on a platter. Fire for Christ doesn't always lead to comfort in your life. Fire for the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't always lead to the praise of men. For John the Baptist, he gave his life, in a sense, as a martyr for bringing the gospel, confronting King Herod, being thrown into prison, and then becoming really the end of a bad party where this girl asked for his head on a platter and he had his head cut off. It's just a reminder that John the Baptist uh, was not rewarded on earth for his diligence in the ministry. And yet we see here a faithfulness to what it is that God called him to do. I like this point because it reminds me to never stop doing what God has called me to do. John could have said, well, 
My mission is done. Christ is here. I think I'll go on vacation. But that's not what he did, right? Now, Jesus is ministering, and John the Baptist is ministering. Jesus is calling people to repentance, and John the Baptist is calling people to repentance. Jesus is baptizing. John the Baptist is baptizing. Never stop doing what God has called you to do. Now, listen, there's a time for a vacation. There's a time for, you know, taking a break and enjoying some time with the family. But I'm just saying as a way of life, you can't lay down and retire from being a Christian. As a way of life, you can't stop loving your wife and washing her with the water of the word. As a wife, you can't stop submitting to your husband and, as unto the Lord and helping him. Lord knows he needs it, so help that brother out. Right? As a parent, you can't stop instructing your children. As a child, you can't stop listening to and honoring your parents. As a Christian, we have work to do. We do it in God's strength for his glory, but we don't stop just because somebody else comes along and they seem to be doing it a little better. You keep doing what God's called you to do. You do it in his strength. You do it for his glory, and you never stop. You never stop giving. You never stop loving. You never stop evangelizing. You never stop praying. You never stop serving. You keep doing what you're doing until Jesus comes back. And that's why I appreciate older saints in our church who just keep going hard after the Lord. Nothing inspires me more than to see a man in his 70s or in his 80s or in his 90s that are more on fire from the Lord than, than, than people who, who are younger and people who you would think would have more energy. I love that. Can I just say I love that about Pastor Steve? I mean, how many of you know that to be true about that brother? I mean, he just encourages me and challenges me, and I'm just like, Lord, if you would give me 30 more years like that, 40 more years like that, a hundred more years like that. It'd be so incredible. And this is an example, I think, for us to follow a little bit. It's just John the Baptist continuing doing what God had called him to do. Let's move on to our second heading, if we can, because with Jesus' ministry beginning and with John's ministry continuing, it does provide an opportunity for conflict. And number two says, the jealousy of John's disciples. Look at verses 25 and 26. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, here we start to see your next blank, the debate about whose ministry is better. Let's not kid ourselves here. This is really what's going on. This is not a discussion this is an outright debate. In fact, that word discussion could be translated as debate. It could be translated as, quote, a controversy, close quote. It could be translated or meaning, the meaning according to BDAG, a Greek lexicon, this word discussion means, quote, an engagement in a controversial discussion, debate, or argument. All right, so what we see here is this interaction between John's disciples and really this Jew who had a question about purification, and maybe even as they looked across the river at Jesus' disciples, what was breaking out here was a heated debate about whose ministry was the best. It's very possible that this Jew wants to be baptized. Notice how it says in verse 25 again, there was a, a Jew. So there was a discussion between some of John's disciples and a Jew. We don't know who this Jew is. We just know somebody comes out. He says, hey, man, I want to get baptized. I believe in what you guys are doing. Who should I get baptized by? Jesus or John the Baptist? And so this causes them to start talking about purification, starts having them talk about, well, which ministry is better? And it's very possible here that, that, that John the Baptist's uh, disciples start to get a little jealous about what's going on just by the nature of the question. I mean, is Jesus' baptism better than John's baptism? John's disciples are kind of fired up about this. Is John doing something wrong and Jesus is doing everything right? I mean, how is Jesus now having better results than John the Baptist? I mean, Jesus and his ministry are cranking out bigger numbers than the Baptist and his ministry. The momentum has officially shifted. It used to be all about John the Baptist. It used to be all about people leaving town, coming out into the wilderness to see a wild man who was eating locusts and honey, preach a fiery gospel, and now they come out and they look at John and they'll be like, eh, I'll go over here. And they go over to Jesus' ministry and his disciples are having trouble bearing with this burden of they have become now second fiddle. 
They, 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 the people are now coming out to hear Jesus. What, what happened to John? Did he lose his mojo? Did he lose his swagger? Did he lose his passion? Did he lose his effectiveness? How did John the Baptist's disciples respond to all this? Did they, did they send the other ministry a note of congratulations and send them flowers? You don't get that idea. That's not how they feel, right? Did they send them an email and say, we're really proud of you guys. We see God blessing your ministry, and we want to celebrate with you. You guys need any help? That's not what they did. Instead, they got jealous. And as they got jealous, they began to compare. And as they began to compare their ministry with Jesus' ministry, they began to compete. And then they began to get insecure about the fact they couldn't keep up with the ministry across town. And by the way, isn't that how we all respond in the flesh? Did you even notice their emotion about the language that's used here when they say, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him? Really? Is it really all? Is everyone really going to him? Maybe John's disciples said, look, John, you embrace this guy and now everyone is going to him. Well, listen, that is an exaggeration and inflation. And children do this at times, right? How come he gets all the toys and I get none of the toys? How come she always get what she wants, but I never get what I want? How come you always say yes to my brother or my sister, but you never say yes to me? How come they get to have all the fun and I never get to have any of the fun? Any parents experience that with your kids? Just human nature, right? It's human nature. You know, we should remind our kids sometimes, like, oh, like, really? Like, you never, you've never received a gift from mom and dad? What, what do we put you in your room, close the door, and slide food under the door? I mean, we love you, but you can't always say yes, right? As parents, we have the same insecurities when we get overlooked, and we reflect often in the same ways, react in those same ways. Why does my boss always acknowledge and praise my coworker, and I never get any credit for the success of this organization? Ever felt like that? Why, why does everything always go right for my friends and my neighbors, who just got a new car, by the way, but nothing like that ever seems to pan out for us? Really? Does everyone else really have all the fun and I never get in on anything good? Can't you just stop and start counting your blessings instead of complaining and comparing about how the Joneses are doing across the street? And yet that's how we react. And when we get like that, we begin to exaggerate things which I'm really good at doing. That's super dangerous as a pastor, right? But we start to think, well, everybody else is having all the fun, and that's what his disciples are saying. Jesus has it all, now we don't have anything. And so they're getting frustrated. And here's what went wrong with John the Baptist's disciples. They misplaced their value. They began to view their value and their worth to God was based on their performance instead of based on the fact that they were image bearers and ambassadors for Almighty God. John's disciples began to place their dignity on their ministry success. And so when the ministry began to suffer a little bit, their pride got hurt and they began to overreact. When their success is threatened, they feel like their value is being threatened as well. They began to compare, they began to compete, and they become, uh, they become insecure, and then they get irrational. But don't we do the same thing? When we value ourselves based on our own accomplishments, it really makes it difficult to rejoice with those around us who are experiencing success when we are not. When our success begins to be eclipsed with others, we begin to feel insecure and lash out. You ever been in that situation? You feel like everybody else is getting the success and you're getting nothing. Have you ever lived a season in the spotlight and all of a sudden you got moved into the shadows? How did that work out for you? How did you respond? Your boss comes to you and says, yeah, we hired somebody else to do that. I'm going to have you just kind of take out the trash. Like, what? How did, how did, you, how did that make you feel? What went on in your heart? The way we react when we feel overlooked and are out of the spotlight will be a great indicator of where we find our value. And listen to me, we all struggle with this. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how much success or lack thereof you've had, we 
struggle with this. John the Baptist's disciples are struggling with it. It's not the only place. I listed three cross-references. Joshua struggled with this. You may have forgotten, but in Numbers 11, 26, now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. So we got two guys who weren't really in the camp where Moses and Joshua were, but these other guys began to prophesy And so these guys began to be questioned about what they're doing. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to camp. So basically, Joshua got all upset that these other guys are starting to do ministry, and Moses was like, don't worry about it. I wish everybody was involved in doing the ministry, and he kind of went along his way. John, the apostle, struggled with this, as we read about Luke in the Gospel of Luke 9, 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Joshua struggled. John the Apostle struggled. Don't try to stop the ministry success of others just because they're not like you. Now look, they've got to have the same gospel as you. There's no doubt about that or it's a false gospel. But there's so many people who have the same gospel but have other differences. And this is where the Philippian believers also struggle with this. As Paul writes them in his epistle, Philippians 1.15, some indeed preach Christ from, from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then on every, only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Now notice in every case, Joshua is the understudy of Moses. John the Apostle is the understudy of Jesus. The Philippian believers are the understudy of Paul. And it's always the understudy that gets bent out of shape because their loyalty is tied too much to a man instead of to Jesus Christ. Their loyalty is tied too much to a ministry other than to the gospel itself because when your loyalty is tied to the gospel, you don't care who succeeds or how they do it. You're just rejoicing that God's name is going forth and you can rejoice in that. We need to stop debating whose ministry is better and instead let's link arms together with those who preach the gospel to extend the gospel call throughout all the world. And so many times we compete as churches and we compete as mission agencies and we compete as programs about what's better. And really that leads to your next blank, the, de- the debacle of comparison and competition. Exodus 20, 17, really the sin of comparison is the sin of covetousness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against, uh, excuse me, Luke. I'm now going to Luke 12:15. He said to them, take care, Jesus says, and be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so we're reminded from the 10th commandment and we're reminded from the Lord Jesus, don't covet. Don't commit the sin of comparison, whether it is a physical possession or an abstract one. In other words, you might have a possession that you want, or they might have a position you want. But be careful that your hearts don't fall into covetousness and jealousy and greed. But if our value is in God and not in our popularity as a person or our popularity as a couple or as a church, then we don't have to be threatened by other people. The desire to have more and the desire to do more and the desire to be the best known, the desire to be liked, the desire to be in the limelight is functional slavery. What you want is to be number one and your ministry to be number one, your marriage to be number one, then you will be a slave to being number one. But if you're content with what God has for you and you just keep plugging along exactly what God's called you to do, then you won't be a slave 
to the rat race of trying to outperform someone else. Can I just remind you this morning that your life is not an audition? You are not on trial. You are not here to determine your value, your worth, or your dignity. You have been given that by God. You have nothing to prove to anyone else about why you should be number one. Let me just make sure you understand what I'm saying by way of further application. We live in a very competitive world, and sometimes in order to get into med school or to law school or a certain business school, you have to be competitive. You need a 4.0, right? You need a lot of extracurricular activities. I know. I I fought tooth and nail to get into PA school where they told me there's over 1,000 applicants and only 32 get in. So it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, right? So I'm not saying don't be competitive. What I am saying to you from this text is that even in the midst of your fight to get into the program that you want, don't lose perspective. If you start to find your value and your identity and your ability to make good grades or to get into the school of your choice, then you will destroy yourself. And I've seen it happen time and time again where people put their value on getting into a certain job or career and it crumbles. Let me explain to you how this works. Let's just say for a scenario that your ambition is to get into med school. And let's say that that you finally get into med school, you're the top of your class, you have a 4.0, you're a valedictorian, and you get into med school, and then you soon realize everybody else in med school has the same credentials you do. They're all sharp, and now you're just striving to keep up with your class because the material's hard, and it's coming at you so fast, and you're struggling to keep your head above water. And let me just remind you, if you were to be in that situation and you were to graduate at the top of your medical class, do you know what you are? You are an image bearer and a child of God who works as a doctor. If you graduate at the bottom of your medical class, do you know what you are? You are an image bearer and a child of God who works as a doctor. What happens if you fail medical school and you get kicked out of the program? Do you know what you are? You are an image bearer and you're a child of God And you do not work as a doctor. (laughs) And that's okay. Because your life is not about your profession. Your life is about Christ. Your life is about exalting him. Your life is about doing what you do with your best effort and God's strength, trusting in his providence to do what he wants. We've got to understand that you may have a whole lot of trouble dealing with the outcome of that, but that's where you need God. And that's where you need to reevaluate what your real value is. Some of you may say, well, I'm in my career already, and you're telling me not to compete. I have to do that. I work in sales. I have to beat the other guy, or I don't get paid, or I have to meet quotas, or I have to to do this in order to promote, or I, I might not even keep my job. You may say, well, for me, it's about that annual review with my boss. If I don't get a good review, I'll be overlooked, and then I'll have no future with the company. I would say that that's all good and fine. Do your best. Work hard to some degree. Try to do, outdo your competitors. That's called a hard work ethic or good business sense. But what I would want you to know this morning from this text is that what is not on the line is your value and your dignity and your worth to God. Your value is not determined by your boss or your ability to beat the other guy. You are an image bearer and a child of God who works wherever God plants you. Stay-at-home moms, you may think that this doesn't apply to you since you're off the hook because you don't have a full-time job out in the workforce. I want to say something to the moms in this church right now. You compare and you compete more than almost anyone. You ever heard of a website called Pinterest? It happens all the time, right? You get on there and there is like these stay-at-home moms who apparently are former NASA engineers or former, former general contractors who put together all of these do-it-yourself home projects and crafts that simply look amazing. And you see moms doing this stuff with their kids and you start to feel like you're just incompetent. And some of these moms prepare whole grain snacks and foods for their kids that are of source. Of course, they're organic and healthy for you. And these snacks are beautifully decorated and colored and they're shaped like zebras and elephants and giraffes and rhinos. 
And these moms take pictures of these exotic celery snacks that their kid supposedly loves, and they put it on Pinterest. Now, I'm not saying that's all wrong, but you know what happens. Other moms look at that, and they feel like a horrible mom because you sit around and look at your kids, and you see your snotty-nosed kids walking around with their arm stuck in a Cheeto bag. And you start to feel horrible about the nourishment you're providing for your kids. These moms now feel like they have no value and they must be a horrible mom. I know you moms struggle with this. It's human nature. You know what Pinterest actually means in the Greek? It means demon website. (laughs) You learn that in seminary. They warn you about these kind of things. It's the devil's favorite weapon to make moms feel devalued, unsophisticated, and losers in their calling. And Facebook is no better either. I've seen your Facebook posts. It's like this, workout, check. Quiet time, check. House clean, check. Breakfast ready, check. Kids lunch prepared, check. Dinner plans made, check. And it's only 7 a.m., What are you supposed to do for the rest of the day except sitting around watching all your posts to see who likes what you posted? The rest of the mortal moms log on at 9 a.m. still in their pajamas and they see it and they feel like they are the failure of the human race. Moms, can I tell you, your value and your dignity and your worth is not based on whether or not you've worked out or not, whether or not you've had your quiet time or not, whether or not your house is clean or not, if all the meals are prepared perfectly or not, but your worth and your value is based on the fact that you are an image bearer and you are a daughter of God. So don't for one second think that if you don't measure up to all the pretty posts on Facebook or Pinterest that somehow you're not worth it. Now again, I'm not saying you can't post anything like that. It's fun to post stuff and to celebrate with others. And and so there's a balance to it all, right? I'm just saying be careful that you're not getting into the sin of comparison and competing. And let me tell you something else. A lot of those people who post that on Facebook or Pinterest, it's not true, right? There are other parts of their house that's a complete wreck. They don't show you that, right? Their kids don't even like those healthy snacks, Right? Their workout might be a joke. Maybe they just did like two jumping jacks, but they checked workout, made you feel bad. Right? Many of the moms that do that, I think, are seeking the approval of man more than they are seeking the approval of God. It's about your heart. Again, I'm not saying, oh, Adam said he hates Pinterest and Facebook, get off. I didn't say that. I said, watch your motive and be careful what's in your heart. So that when you see that stuff and you post that stuff, you do it to the glory of God. And if it leads you into comparison and competing and insecurity, maybe you need to get off. Maybe you need to put your eyes elsewhere. Maybe you need to be busy doing what God's called you to do instead of seeing what everybody else is doing. And let me just point out to you this morning that the comparison and the contrast or competitiveness in this text have to do with ministry. Not about the the workforce, and it's not about the home. It's actually about ministry. What are John the Baptist's disciples insecure about? Baptism numbers. How big their ministry was. They're concerned about whether people thought John's ministry was the best or someone else's. And they're concerned with how big their church is. Do pastors and ministry leaders compare and compete with other pastors and leaders? Oh yeah, you bet they do. All of them, except for me, or horrible at this. I'm telling you, pastors are the most insecure and narcissistic people you will ever meet. And of course, pastors like to hide it with their spiritual conversations. So Adam, tell me how many sheep are in your flock. So Adam, tell me how many souls have you been winning for the Lord? Have you been stirring the waters of baptism at your church? How many did you baptize this year? You know what they're doing? They're comparing and they're seeking approval of men, because if they outdo you, they're like, oh, brother, well, we'll pray for you in your ministry. (laughs) People struggle. I struggle. I fall into that category of John's disciples of comparing and competing on a regular basis. God help me. God help each one of us. That could be true of our elders, could be true of our deacons, could be true of our counseling team, our youth director, worship leaders, men's and women's leaders, children's ministry. Come on, we all struggle. You see something else take off across the, the, the valley, and you're like, oh, man, they got it going on. And look at us. We're dying on the vine. Let me tell you something, Placerita. Our worth 
And our value will never be placed on our attendance or the money we give, but on the God we serve. And we better come together and make sure we understand it's about Jesus Christ and exalting him. It's not about numbers and it's not about programs. It's about loving Christ and finding our value there. Our value should be found in the fact that we are image bearers of God. Our value is found in the fact that you are a Christian if you've repented and believed then you are a child of the king. So don't fall into the debacle of comparing and competing with others. Instead, fall into the joy of coming to the cross and seeing God's love for you, his care for you, the fact that he died for you. That's where our value and our joy and our, and our happiness should be based on. So watch out for debate. Watch out for debacle. One more thing. How about the desperation of an identity crisis? That's really what's going on. People are so desperate to find their identity that the church is in an identity crisis because people are in an identity crisis. Let me just remind you this morning, you were created by God in his image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. As a human being, you are important to God. More important than all of his creation is the human being because you bear the image of God. You are more important than galaxies and planets. You are more important to God than suns and solar systems. You are more important to God than the moon and the stars. You are more important to God than mountains and oceans. You are more important to God than any plant, any algae, and any endangered species. You are important to God because he created you to be an image bearer of himself. And when you come to Christ, you've been recreated in Christ as a Christian to give specific testimony to the greatness and the grandeur and the mercy and the salvation of our God. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so as we strive to obey God, we want to produce good works, but it's got to be his works, his power, his strength, his joy. All of it's got to be in him. So don't forget who you are and don't forget who you represent and don't be overcome with jealousy. Be overcome with joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Third heading I want to give to you. That was the main part of the sermon, just, just in case you're wondering. Number three, the humility of John the Baptist, because I want you to see how he kind of responds to this. Verses 27 and 28, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Do you know what these words are? These words are the words of a content man. These are words of a man who knows his place in the gospel ministry. These words are the words of a man who's not trying to outdo anybody, but do exactly what God's called him to do. You know why? Your next blank, because he knows God is sovereign in bestowing his blessing. It's God who blesses ministries. It's God who blesses people, however he chooses. God is sovereign in bestowing salvation, John 6, 65. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. God is sovereign in bestowing authority to governments. Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And God is sovereign in bestowing his blessings in ministry. And that's what verse 27 is about. John's saying, look, the only way a person can receive that kind of blessing is if it comes from heaven. John the Baptist is reminding us that we are not auditioning for value or importance. No one has anything that he didn't get from God. Our salvation is from God. Our authority comes from God. Our gifts come from God. The success of our ministry comes from God. And listen to me, church. When we get a hold of this, this frees us from the sin of comparison, the sin of competition, and the sin of insecurity. This frees us up to actually love other people and other ministries and celebrate their success. And you say that you do that? Somebody comes to you and be like, hey, what happened? I thought you had this going on. I heard that church across town built a new building. I heard that church across town just doubled in the last year. I heard that church across town has so-and-so going there now. How does that make you feel? We've got to be careful that we do what we do as those who are valued by God. Let's go hard after God, but let's understand it is God who provides the increase. And your next blank says, be sure, or excuse me, God is sure to give the increase as he sees fit. John says kind of here in verse 28, he's like, hey guys, you know I've been saying all along I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. 
So he's saying, hey, all along, this is what I've been telling you guys, right? In John 1, verses 6, he says that John was sent from God to be a witness to the light that he himself is not the light. In 115, he says, he who comes after me outranks me. In 120, he says, I'm not the Christ. In 123, he says, I'm just crying out in the wilderness. In 127, he says, I'm not, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. So John the Baptist got it all along. It's his disciples got too loyal to the Baptist instead of loyal to Christ which is why I so appreciate Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, where he talks a little bit about that whole debate about one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, but are you not being merely human? What is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paul watered, but God gave the growth. So neither, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so we see the same thing referred to there in chapter 4. We've got to understand that our boasting in the success that we have should only be in God. And if we lack success, we need to look to God and ask him to do what he will for his glory and the power of the Spirit and let him take care of our failures. All we can do is our best in his strength for his glory and realize that our value is based on our relationship with him through Christ and not on the success or lack thereof of our ministry. And this leads us to the perfect illustration, number four, that John the Baptist uses in verse 29. Check this out. The one who says, or excuse me, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You know what we're seeing here? Your next blank, the church is the bride of Christ. You know that already. But we need to see it in this particular little illustration to understand that life is not about you. Everything is about Jesus. I want you to ask yourself the question as we look at this verse, is my life about me or is my life about Jesus? Well, if you're at church today, you're off to a good start, but I'm talking about Monday through Saturday. Are those days also the Lord's days in your mind? Does every day of your week belong to Jesus, and do you give him your all, or do you just do that one day a week? And here in verse 29, we understand that the church is Jesus' bride, not yours. Remember, this is John's response to his disciples as they're working through the tension in their own hearts as they are insecure and jealous of Jesus and his disciples. And so John says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So here we clearly see that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. What does that make you? That makes you the friend. In this analogy, you're the friend of the bride. Or we would say today, you're the best man. You have a part to play in the work of redemption and God's sovereignty, but you are not the center of the stage. We have a part to play in the game of life, but you are only to follow Christ. You are not Michael Jordan, you're Scotty Pippen at best. That's for all my NBA friends out there. You're playing second fiddle. Right? You're not the bridegroom. You're the bridegroom's friend. The best man is to act on behalf of the bridegroom and to make the preliminary arrangements for the ceremony. The best man is also to attend to the bride and make sure that she has everything she needs before the bridegroom gets there. The best man's joy actually increases when he hears the bridegroom coming for his bride. The best man is not to take over the center stage. It's not to steal the show. And he is never, ever, ever to run off at the bride. Jesus is the groom. And these people are his bride. And I'm just here to help in any way that I can. And so John the Baptist is saying that this is my great joy to rejoice in Jesus. John loved Jesus. And he got his joy from Jesus. And John spent his whole life serving Jesus. And that brought him joy. And that's why he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Not by competing, but by giving Jesus all of his due, obviously. I mean, you ever think about how silly this was? It's like, no wonder the other ministry is doing better. They got Jesus. You're just a mortal man. They got the Son of God. It's a little ironic that there would even be that kind of competition here. But in Christian circles, sometimes it sounds cliche to say, okay, I'll give Jesus first place. You know, we say that a lot. I'll put Jesus first, but do we really do that? Or do we really sometimes wish we could put our own needs and our own desires first, but we know we're supposed to put Jesus' 
in front of our own. Well, can I tell you a secret? There is a paradox to this life, and not many people have figured it out. And the paradox is this. The more you live for yourself and your joy, the more your joy will evade you and you will be miserable. And the more you die to yourself and your desires and your wants and live for Jesus and his glory, the more actual joy you will experience in this life. Some of you don't believe me, and I might suggest to you that's why you're so miserable. I've never seen a person who loves Christ and who gives his all for him who's miserable. I see that individual walking with Christ in such a beautiful, intimate way that I long for what they have because they're not tied down to the things of this world and the temporal goals that you and I set. They're just tied to Jesus. I find this paradox to be so true in my own life. The more I try to find my joy and my desires and in my ways and in my dreams and in my goals and in my possessions or in my plans, the more frustrated I get, the more anxious I get, the more upset I get, the more impatient I get, and the more hopeless I feel. But when I look to Christ, I see him in all of his beauty. When I look to Christ, I hear his words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Are you struggling this morning with the sin of comparison and competing and insecurity? Or have you found your joy in Jesus? Are you a good best man? Because you're Jesus' best man. And are you putting his interests first or have you tried to steal Jesus' bride? Jesus has already committed himself to his bride and he's coming again. The next blank says the bridegroom is coming to claim his bride. And those verses from Revelation talk about how he's coming. He's already committed to the bride, but in the end, he comes for his bride and they sit down and eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Last thing I want to show you this, verse 30, number 5, the thrust of John the Baptist. What's the thrust? Well, it's the word must here in verse 30 that we know so well. He must increase, but I must decrease. Many of the commentaries point out the fact that this word must in the original language means this is necessary. It's not optional. This is necessary. In fact, the word must is used three times in John chapter 3. It's next blank, the must of the sinner. John 3, 7, do not marvel, Jesus said to Nicodemus, that you must be born again. So the sinner must be born again. Two, the must of the Savior, 3, 14, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, uh, as he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So it was not optional for Jesus to go to the cross and to be crucified and to be raised from the dead. Third must is this one, 3.30, the must of the saint. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you must realize that he is going to increase in your life and you must decrease, right? He must become greater in our hearts and in our minds and we must become less and less. Hide us behind the cross, Lord, ought to be our prayer. This ought to be the anthem of anyone who has ever beheld Jesus and considered what he has done for you. If you look to Jesus as a historical figure or a religious icon, then you may actually think Jesus is beginning in between you and what you really want. So don't see it just as a formality. You must have Jesus, all of him. And when you behold him for who he is, then you will never be the same. Who is Jesus? He's your creator. Who is Jesus? He's your savior. Who is Jesus? He's the lover of your soul. Who is Jesus? He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Who is Jesus? He's your redeemer, your advocate. He is your bridegroom. He is your joy. And so the thrust of our lives should not be comparing ourselves to others and competing with others or living a life of insecurity. The thrust of our life should be committing ourselves to Christ and saying, I can't, but he can. It should be about coming to the cross and loving Jesus as a response to the way that he loves you and he draws you in to live an abundant life of total dependence on him. And if you live this kind of life, then this take-home These points will apply to you. Question number one, where do you find your value, your worth, and your dignity? Please tell me you don't find it in your job. Please tell me you don't find it in being a homemaker. Please tell me you don't find it in your profession, in your hobby. Please tell me that you find it in Christ. Only in Christ will we find value, worth, and dignity. Number two, if you struggle with the sin of comparison, what's the way out? 
you're here this morning, you're like, that's me, Adam. I'm struggling with comparing myself to all those around me. What's your way out? Become less and let Jesus become more. Look to Christ. Allow him to be your all in all. Stop looking at others. Stop comparing yourself and just be and do who God's called you to be and do as an image bearer of God and a child of the King. Three, do you believe the paradox that the more and more you live for your life and your joy, the more and more your joy will evade you? Do you believe that? I hope you do, because if you're looking for joy, you're looking for the wrong thing. Look for Jesus, and he gives you joy. Look to be obedient, and he fills you with joy. Look to walk in the power of the Spirit, and you can overcome the tendencies of the flesh and the sin of comparison by finding your joy complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for reminding us of these truths. We confess as a church, God, we are quick to compare and to compete and to feel insecure and inadequate. And it's all because of our sin. Because when we look to Christ, and we look to the provision of the sacrifice of the Son of God, and we look to the way you love us, and we look to the way that you change us, and you carry us, and we look to the way that you fill us, then we can have our joy completed. And so, God, I pray for us as a church, God, that we would look to Christ, that we would be filled with his love, that we would be eager to dig deeper into the word and into prayer and to just throw ourselves at the foot of the cross and to see Jesus and all of his love and all of his kindness. And we would want to serve him and respond to his love for us by just seeking to please him. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.